Uh, today, I'm going to interview Dr. Mark Alfano, and we're going to talk about the basic elements of morality. I am super excited about this interview. Uh, all right, Mark, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Mark Alfano. I'm Associate Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University, which is in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and I've been working in philosophy, but also in cognitive fields like psychology, a little bit of anthropology, some digital humanities work and uh, some collaborations with computer scientists for the last decade or so. Wonderful. You're doing a lot of different stuff. Excellent. Uh, so you uh, co-authored an article about the basic elements of morality. I think I think you called it the, uh, the theory of moral molecules. Why don't you summarize the concept? Sure, yeah. Um, so it's, it's not really my original idea. So the, the idea comes from Oliver Curry, who's one of my co-authors on this paper. And for a while now, for several years, he's been pushing this idea that morality should be understood in terms of cooperation, that morality is basically what gets us to cooperate with each other. And he understands cooperation in a somewhat technical sense, namely the sense that you get from game theory. So in game theory, an encounter counts as cooperative when there's a way for me to be better off without you being worse off or even for both of us to be better off than we would be if we acted differently. So a standard example of this is one that you see in uh, Rousseau, the so-called stag hunt. So in a, in a stag hunt, we're both sort of uh, hunter-gatherers, and we're in a position where each of us could independently go and pursue rabbits on our own, or we could try to team up. And when we team up, we, uh, we hunt a stag or a deer. And in order to do that effectively, one of us needs to sort of lie in wait while the other scares the deer down the track. And then the person who's lying in wait jumps out and, and, and kills it. And that'll get us a lot more meat in each if we then split it than we would get if we, we hunted individually. The thing about the stag hunt is that it's a little bit risky to engage in one of these because if the other person sort of gets distracted or loses heart or finds a different partner with whom they can hunt an even better stag, then I might be lying in wait and you just never scare the stag down the, the trail towards me and then I'm left to go hungry. So what is needed for cooperation to work well is for the strategies that people employ to be what's called evolutionarily stable, which means not only that it, we're both better off by following through with our commitments this one time, but that if we adopt this as a sort of general strategy, then that is stable, meaning that we, we can keep doing the same thing that the strategy recommends over over time. Now, evolutionarily st stable strategies have been studied in game theory for, for almost a century now. And as it turns out, there's a whole bunch of different evolutionarily stable strategies. Um, the one I just mentioned, the stag hunt, is usually talked about in terms of something like group loyalty or group solidarity, where I feel like I'm part of this we, this this group. And so I've got a commitment. And if I've told you, yeah, I'm going to help with the hunt, then I don't just stop and wander off or, or find a new partner when you're not looking. But there are other evolutionarily stable strategies. And in the theory of morality is cooperation, there's, uh, in fact, six others. Uh, so one of them is kin altruism or family values. So this involves looking after your kids, looking after your grandkids, but also cousins and so on. There's reciprocity, which has to do with like, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. 
that's kind of a positive reciprocity, but there's also negative reciprocity. So, you know, like uh, if you if you hurt me, then I'll hurt you or I hurt someone you care about. There's a kind of interlocking pair that are sometimes called the hawk and dove strategies. So the basic idea with a hawk-dove interaction is that there's some kind of resource which can't be split evenly. And so if we both try to grab all of it uh, or the majority of it, maybe we come to blows or we we end up destroying the resource and not and neither of us has anything. And in this kind of interaction, what's often stable is that the more dominant party or the more powerful party or the more authoritative party is given the lion's share of the resource and the other party takes enough, but not nowhere near half. So that means that there's one party playing the hawkish strategy and the other playing the correlative dovish strategy. I'm almost done. And then the, the next two are fairness and property rights. And like with the hawk-dove interactions, these have to do with sort of management of conflict or conflict de-escalation. So with fairness, when you have a, a divisible resource, what you'll often see is that people will split it evenly. So it's it's not a matter of like, I need to get more than half and you get less than half or you get more than half. I get less, guess, get less than half. It's rather the sort of possibility of meeting in the middle. And the last one is uh, what we call in this paper property rights, basically recognition of prior ownership. So the thing about ownership, whether it's individual or say collective in terms of land rights, is that it doesn't make a lot of sense to invest effort in say developing crops or in building buildings or in in general you know building up a crop uh sorry building up a, a herd of animals if you know that any day now someone's going to just come along and take everything that you invested in so the idea with property rights is that we have this moral imperative to innate, allow people to enjoy the fruits of their labors and not to just come along and steal from them once they've invested in this way so that's the idea of the sort of seven basic elements of morality. And in prior work, Oliver has found that all seven of these uh, emerge as independent dimensions when you uh, run a self-report survey with adult participants. So someone who scores high, for instance, in, um, say, in reciprocity might score high or score low in group loyalty. Um, so it's an independent dimension, uh, orthogonal dimension of uh, sort of moral value or, or commitment. Oliver has a team that also found that all seven of these elements of morality can be found in the anthropological record if you look in the what's called the human relations area files, which is the largest collection of ethnographies uh, in the world, um, and that they're found uh, at all stages of economic development from small band hunter-gatherers to agrarians to commercial societies. And that suggests that there's a certain kind of universality to these very broadly characterized and abstract moral values. In the Moral Molecules paper, we go a step further and ask like, okay, given that these are independent dimensions, what would happen if you started putting th them together in pairs? So what would happen, for instance, if you put together loyalty, group loyalty, and reciprocity? And we started thinking about this and it was like, well, that's basically friendship. And then we asked like, well, what if you take kin altruism and you put it together with the dovishness? 
so sort of respect for uh, for your elders. And we thought, well, you know, that's basically filial piety. So then we went kind of snooping around uh, all 21 pairwise combinations, and we found examples of these in, in lots of societies, and also examples of them being sort of praised as good ways to be or good uh, practices to adopt by philosophers, both contemporary and historical. So sorry, that was a bit long-winded, but that's the basic idea with the paper. Okay, so I'm just going to try to summarize what I understood here. So there are these basic, these seven basic or fundamental values that seem to um, be universal. And these values are, I guess, these traits and concepts that we've adopted and exercised because they help us flourish as a group. So it's, it's in a sense, it's like social evolution or something like that. Like the traits that um, the people that did not exercise those particular values and embody those values or maybe ostracized by the rest of the group and they maybe like that off or something? Yeah. So it, it could have to do with ostracism. It could also function through, through sanction. So if somebody is disloyal, they might not be ostracized. They might just be punished. And even without those two mechanisms that are more about sort of controlling individuals within a group, there's also sort of the context of intergroup competition and groups that cooperate more effectively internally are going to flourish more effectively than neighboring groups that cooperate less effectively. And even if they don't like go to war or anything, they're they're likely to expand and also likely to be imitated. Because if, you know, I, my village is cooperating in one way and your village is cooperating in another way. And I look over and I'm like, wow, they all got plenty of food to eat and they seem happy and so on. And, you know, here we are just barely scratching out an existence. What are they doing that is different from what we're doing? So you can have this sort of cultural spread of these, um, these values and norms. Yeah. I mean, on the face of it, it sounds extremely plausible to me, right? Because I mean, human beings are not completely independent. We're interdependent beings. We're social beings, right? Like I can't do the vast majority of the things that I would need to to live the happy life. You know, like I don't know how to grow stuff. You know, even if I knew how to grow stuff, like I don't, I, like I would need help building a nice shelter, you know, or something like that, right? Like the like every like if we work together, we can flourish much better than if we work independently. So then that leads to um, you know more successful societies, more productive societies, maybe more wealthy societies in which the people are um, happier. And then be, people notice these benefits and so pass on these values to the next generation. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, it's a bit speculative to, to ask, you know, where exactly do these things come from? But I think one plausible answer is advanced recently by Kim Sterelli in his book, The Pleistocene Contract, where he, he basically asks, you know, wh where does cooperation come from? Where Which of these seven values, for instance, would you expect to arise first? And he basically says family values for sure. And then things that don't involve a lot of uh, of effort and a lot of sort of cognitive load. So that would mean things like direct reciprocity. So, you know, when someone hurts you, you know who did it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like ask, how did this happen? Whereas with like indirect reciprocity, you know, if, if something bad happens to me, but I don't know that somebody else sort of planned it from afar, then I don't have a way of like retaliating, for instance. So Sterelli suggests that family values, direct reciprocity, and solidarity with a rather small group of people that you interact with on a daily basis or almost a daily basis 
somebody like a small band hunter gatherer kind of uh, community um, would be sort of where you would expect this to get started. And then as societies scale up beyond the Dunbar number of larger than 150 people or so, you have to start introducing other mechanisms and norms and institutions that uh, govern things like uh, property and mm -hmm. fair division of resources when we've all put our work into growing these crops and it's hard to you know keep track of like who did what and how much effort was expended by each person then we just say okay well there's 12 of us so we're going to split it 12 ways and just leave it at that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i wonder if this is kind of like just an extension of the fact that human beings are intelligent enough to learn from their mistakes and to recognize patterns right so for instance just think about the the virtue of patience, you know, like I felt like if you live, if you're old enough and you you have enough experience to know that being impatient is bad for you. Right. And I can easily imagine a situation where let's say that, you know, we're thinking back in the day, we have to build our own shelter and stuff like that. And somebody's impatient. Right. And that, that is going to make it harder for them to build a successful shelter. Maybe they make one, and, um, you know, they just, it's taken a little too long for them and they just like give up or something like that. Right. I mean, somebody with more experience, maybe like an elder, you'd be like, "Yeah, see, that's not good, right?" Like, yeah. if you if you have if you have that type of vice, then you're not going to be able to build a shelter because it takes patience to build it. Yeah, that that sounds plausible. Um, it's also potentially the case that there's some benefit to sort of trait diversity or or dispositional diversity. So, if everyone is super patient, then maybe we we commit ourselves to projects that are actually not worth pursuing, and we just keep along. So having a few impatient people around can actually be quite beneficial because they can be like, look, this is not worth their time. Like, let's just give up. Uh, yeah. Or let's do something that's satisficing rather than optimizing. So that kind of diversity is often kind of beneficial. Um, there's a, a philosopher in the Netherlands, Mandy Estola, who's written about these kinds of seeming vices that can turn out to be virtues if kind of sprinkle them in amongst people who have other kinds of dispositions. Okay. No, that makes sense. So like one of the first impressions that I got when I, when I read the article was that, okay, well this, if it is true that these seven basic values are, are universal, then what, you know, like, what does that say about moral relativism? What does that say about cultural relativism? You know, because at least I find like in, in my, in my students, a lot of them are quite sympathetic to cultural relativism. You know, they just don't think like it's within, like within their right to tell another culture to change because their practices are wrong. Right. And so nobody has the moral high ground, right? Like you, you, you know, endorse and exercise female genital mutilation. We don't, we think it's bad, but who are we to say that it's objectively wrong, right? It's just a different culture and different practice. And then I feel like that position comes from the observation that there are different moral values, or at least it seems like it, right? Like, like the, it comes from descriptive cultural relativism in a sense. So this seems to say that it's actually false. Like we actually don't have these different, I mean, we, we may have specific moral, a uh, different practices and how these values uh, manifest, but deep down, we all share the same values. Um, yeah. So I, I think I basically agree with that. I, I argued for something similar in my 2016 book on moral psychology. And I guess the way I think of it is these are very broadly and abstractly characterized values. So if I say, you know, oh, well, you know, you should be good to your family. That's not nearly enough to tell you what you should do now with, you know, with respect to your, your mother, because that, 
you know, there's lots of ways of being good to people. And what counts as being good to people depends on cultural practices and expectations and norms. And that means that there are still going to be lots of different ways of sort of elaborating on these themes and that there will therefore be different cultural practices. Um, but the underlying values of each of these practices, um, at least according to this theory, is going to be one of these seven elements, or maybe there's an eighth that we somehow missed. I mean, there's an in interesting example in Herodotus, the Greek uh, historian. Uh, he says that this emperor summons um, I believe it's uh, some, some folks from India and some folks from Greece to his court and asks them, okay, um, you know, when, when your parents uh, die, are you going to uh, burn them? Or are you going to have them cremated? And one group says, oh my God, that would be so disrespectful. Never would we do that. And the other group says, yes, that's the only right thing to do. Of course, I honor my parents. And then he says, uh, okay, well, when your parents die, um, would you engage in ritual cannibalism? Would you eat a little piece of, of them? And then things flip. And what the, the second group says, oh, my God, that's horrible. That's so immoral. The, the first group says, um, yes, of course, uh, you know, it, it would be uh, a lack of uh, filial piety not to do that. Herodotus concludes from this, or the character, the emperor character concludes from this, you know, culture is king of everything. But in a way, it it's not, right? I mean, it's, yes, they, they, they disagree about what constitutes respect for your elders, but they agree that what you should do is respect your elders. So like different ways of implementing the same shared underlying values. Uh, and I think in very many cases of what looks like cultural um, disagreement, this is what you're going to end up finding, is that actually the underlying values are shared. There's disagreement about how to best to implement them, or there's just d different ways of understanding and construing things. In addition, I should say that the, the fact of cultural difference is, is often exaggerated in a, in a sort of pernicious way, because what we tend to see when we look in more detail is that actually there's more differences in moral values within groups than between them. Mm -hmm. In other words, that you, the same kinds of moral disagreements that you find in culture one are likely to crop up in culture two as well. Um, so it's not that like here, this is our way of doing things here and then they have this other way of doing things there. It's rather that we disagree in this way and so do they. Yeah. Um, I, I would suggest for your students maybe to to have a, a think about that. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that that's a good point. It was funny. I was going to bring up that story about, you know, like eating your elders after they die too, because I think that's a very um, illustrative story. Um, do you think then that it kind of comes down to maybe a couple of different levels, like maybe like two levels of morality or something like that? You have the first level, which is the basic values that perhaps are universally shared. And then just the second value, a second level, which is basically how these values are embodied and how these uh, the values are practiced in that particular culture? Or do you think there's like another level? Um, yeah, I think you can get a very long way with just those two. I'm not sure you need to posit a third one. It seems to me that the project is some sort of moral anthropology, right? Like we observe these different cultural practices, but at the same time, we seem to observe that there are these shared moral values between everybody. And so it's 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 a project that kind of describes what these val shared values are, 
but it doesn't tell us necessarily what the right thing to do is. Like it's not giving us a theory of morality. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I think that's right. So because it's so abstractly characterized, um, you're not going to know what counts as say reciprocity in a lot of circumstances. And in addition, there's there's often multiple evolutionarily stable strategies that respond to the same situation. So the theory of morality is cooperation is not going to necessarily be able to say like, which of these two strategies that are available is the better one to pursue. Um, so that's going to be something that people have to sort of negotiate or muddle their way through. It's also often the case that we can sort of change the game and take a situation that is um, a non-zero-sum game and transform it into a zero-sum game, which then makes it possible to cooperate. Because if people approach things on the assumption that um, the interaction is zero-sum, then cooperation is by definition in impossible. But if there's a transformation either through social norms or institutions or technology or legal practices um, that can take a situation that hitherto had been non-zero-sum and turn it into one where all of a sudden now morality is relevant because now it's possible to cooperate. These values then, like, is this is this theory hypothesized that it's simply learned behavior that is just passed down from like the parents and like the older generations of the kids? Like, no, like reciprocity is a good thing. You know, your friend did something for you and you should do something for him back. Or is there also the uh, uh, part of the hypothesis that there is a genetic or biological component? Like there's just certain dispositions are genetically passed down. Yeah, so um, if, if it's uh, sort of a pluralist theory in this regard. So the expectation is that some of these are going to have at least a genetic component, probably especially family values. Just kin altruism is, is a very, very deeply built into our DNA. But direct reciprocity, probably also group solidarity with people that we spend a lot of time with probably also has a genetic component. But then beyond those, the other ones are more likely to be learned either uh, through vertical transmission, right? So parents and uncles and grandparents teaching um, or through horizontal transmission where you see other people cooperating in a certain way and think like, oh, that worked out really well for them. I should do that too. So it can be learned in that way. Also cultural transmission and um, transmission through um, the embodiment of moral values in institutions and uh, technologies. So, you know, in many cases, we've sort of built our world in such a way that cooperation is encouraged, right? We, we have roads and we paint a line down the middle of them so that everybody can drive on the left or everybody can drive on the right and we don't smash into each other. Um, so that's sort of a way of uh, sort of building expectations and norms of uh, of cooperation into uh, the environment. So let's go through, let's go, can we go through a few of them? I, I'm interested to or what the, uh, like what they look like. So let's say, um, I mean, I'm just going to pick two random ones. What about reciprocity and property rights? We, we suggest in the paper that this is embodied through the value of restitution. So the idea there is that you ought to return benefits that are received. Uh, and make amends for injuries that uh, that you've imposed. And the idea would be like, you know, you, you ought to respect first possession. So you, 
you combine these two form this notion that you, you ought to return things to their original owners. So one way of harming someone is is theft, right? You take mm-hmm. you take stuff. Um, and so if you if you believe in uh, reciprocity and you also believe in property rights, then you think like, okay, well, when you steal, you ought to give it back. Yeah. Okay. And I, I guess I can imagine like you know, let's say somebody damages your property, right? Then you pay for the repairs. Somebody damages your car or something like that. Would that also right. fit fit into it? Yeah. Again, because that's it. That's um, not theft, but um, another way of depriving someone of their property or or ruining their ability to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about uh, what is it? Uh, family values and property rights. Well, like what? How does that look? Um, I think that one's pretty straightforward. So the the idea there would be something like primogeniture. So we you ought to look after your family and first come first served. Therefore, firstborn kid gets the inheritance. Um, or in, in more sexist societies, firstborn son gets oh. um, uh, gets the full inheritance. And what's kind of interesting uh, about that is that there's also this practice that you find in, I believe, medieval England called gavelkind, which um, is a combination of division um, and kinship. So the idea there is like not that first come, first serve takes precedence, but it's rather you should look after your family, your kids. Um, and you should divide resources fairly. So that means each of your kids should get an e- equal share of your uh, property when you die. Mm, okay, okay. So how would something like family and group solidarity go together? Like they seem very, almost overlapping. In the paper, we we suggest that this it is um, best understood in terms of like fraternity. So like if you take the idea that you ought to help your group and you ought to help your family, um, Put them together then the idea would be something like you ought to help your group by treating them like your family so you get fictive kinship the idea of like a blood brother or uh, sorry yeah blood brother or um in arabic milk kinship uh, is the the term that they use so it, it's a sort of taking the, the the warmth that you have towards your family and expanding that um sentiment toward non-kin i see Okay, that no, that that makes that makes sense. Is there a theory as to which values are actually more important? Like, is there a ranking, a hierarchy of them, or are they supposed supposed to be like equally valuable because they're equally important for social cooperation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, it's it's kind of unaddressed in the current theorizing, and that's in part because there's supposed to be sort of seven independent dimensions. So put rank ordering them would be to sort of force them onto a single dimension. I expect that it will depend largely on the economic um, and social context. So think, for instance, about, you know, what, what if we actually achieved fully automated luxury space communism? Um, what if we just had like super abundant resources? Well, in that case, possession would start to matter a lot less. Because, you know, if I take something from you, you, you know, you just go to the replicator and make another one. Um, so I, I think that it, it's going to kind of depend on um, what these values answer to, what, they, what kinds of cooperation they enable. Um, so think, for instance, about like context, context of, of um, war and skirmishing. In that kind of context, group solidarity is going to sort of rise up and become more important because if you can't count on your group in 
uh, a context where you know people are trying to kill you, um, then all of a sudden you know everything falls apart, and maybe possession matters less, uh, or division of, of resources matters less in that kind of context. Um, so I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that any of these is sort of the the main one, and then the others fall into some rank ordering below them, but rather that. Um, it's going to sort of respond to the circumstances to a large extent. Let's see if we can kind of fit a particular, a more specific moral value and kind of fit it into this model. So what about something like chastity? You know, that, that came to mind. Like, what what does that fall under? Is it family? Well, like, what is it? Yeah, it's going to depend on your conception of chastity. Um, but clearly one of the things that's going to be relevant there is this kind of kin altruism. Because if someone is not chaste, then you don't know who their kin are, how many of them they've got, and you don't know what, therefore, what kinds of commitments they've implicitly made by making more people. So if we're thinking of chastity in terms of like selecting a cooperative partner, then I want to know of my cooperative partner, like, what am I getting myself into here, right? Is this someone who's got lots of commitments because they've got lots of offspring from prior relationships? Or is this someone who doesn't have any commitments yet, and therefore I can count on them to invest fully in their relationship with me and the family that we are going to make together? Um, that would be my initial thought about um, chastity. Um, and that, if that's on the right track, that shows how technologies can um, can cause transformative effects on our morality. Because once you get um, safe and effective uh, and widely distributed um, condoms and uh, other forms of birth control in the 20th century, all of a sudden the fact that someone was not chaste doesn't mean that they necessarily have a bunch of offspring. And therefore, they're sort of still... Uh, you know, a valuable uh, partner in a way that maybe in the past they would not have been. Okay, so then the idea is that it, because morality is a way uh, to socially cooperate, there is this value of, but did you say kin altruism? So like, I just, I, I need to take care of my, my kid, right? Yeah, so that, that's one of the seven elements yeah. that posited in this theory. So you, look, you shouldn't look after your family, yeah. and that's going to require time and effort. Okay. And then the and then the concern is that well if my partner has multiple offspring then they are my kin as well the kind of my kin kind of not my kin and and yet I still have to take care of them as well is is that what the idea is so uh, that's that's related to what I had in mind I was thinking more like my partner already has a lot of commitments and is therefore not going to be able to commit fully to any offspring that we make together. Oh, I see. Because there's just their their time and effort has to be split, so they can't dedicate their attention solely on like this shared kin that we have. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. I, when I dug a little deeper into this theory, I found that you actually have some sort of like Excel spreadsheet, right, with like these seven basic values and actually combinations of them, right? And there were some of them were more than two. I think some of them had a combination of three, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I. And when I pulled it up, I'm just like, whoa, there are a lot of blank, like blank entries in this Excel sheet. Because uh, it was almost like we, we couldn't think of a word to describe whatever this value is that's made up of these three ba more basic values. Yeah. So <laughs> that was kind of an effort at crowdsourcing, which went a 
some way, but not as far as we had had hoped. If you take seriously this idea that you can put the seven moral values together in pairs, then you should also be able to put them together in triplets and quadruplets um, and five tuples and six tuples and, and maybe even all seven together. Um, and then the question is like, well, is each of these conceptual possibilities realized in at least some cultures? Uh, are, are there words or short phrases that refer to, say, reciprocity, hawkishness, and fair division of labor, fair, fair division of resources uh, all together in the same way that, say, filial piety is a matter of family values and, and um, dovishness. And it turns out, you know, when you start listing all of the, the possibilities um, one by one, um, it can be a bit of a puzzler to, to think about like, well, I don't know about that one. Maybe that one just doesn't exist. So uh, what are the next steps for for this theory? Oliver is pursuing this by writing a book. So uh, hopefully that will be out uh, sometime next year. I am especially interested in using the theory of morality of cooperation to understand moral progress. Um, so I think I mentioned a, a couple of examples like the, the technology of birth control. Um, and I, I think that since there are many ways to cooperate, one thing that we ought to be out on the lookout for is ways to transform our situations either so that they um, that cooperation becomes possible when hitherto it was not possible, or in such a way that while cooperation was possible before, better or more cooperation becomes possible. That could include um, expanding the scope of people who participate in the cooperative endeavor. Uh, and it could also include just forming a, a, a different uh, approach that has a better overall um, outcomes. So for instance, switching from reciprocity involved with, with like blood feuds to a more positive kind of reciprocity um, where it's not like we're we're trading harms to each other, but now all of a sudden we're we're trading um, benefits to each other. So these are evolutionarily stable strategies, but one is overall just much worse uh, for everyone involved. So sort of getting from situations of non-cooperation to situations of cooperation, or getting from situations of cooperation, but it's kind of shitty for everybody to cooperation that's better for everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just the, it, it would still be these basic values, but they would just be embodied differently. They would manifest differently given um, the, the state of our technology and how it changes our world. Yeah, exactly. The, the state of our technology or our legal norms or our, yeah, our um, mutual understanding, for instance. Mm-hmm. Do you think that these seven values are so basic that no matter how we change as a society and as a world, that they will still remain like the seven basic values? Like we're not going to get rid of one. I think the one that is most likely to be at least tamped way down is uh, is property. I mean, if we actually manage the transition, energy transition, and sort of end up in a world with uh, immense prosperity... Um, then respect for prior ownership is just going to matter a lot less to us. Obviously, when it comes to things that have like sentimental value, um, that's that's not going to be relevant, right? So if you take someone's like 
you know, heirloom, they're the a ring that their grandmother gave them or something that can't be replaced without loss of value, then then that's still a problem. So it's not that the value of property would disappear entirely, but that it just is not going to matter nearly as much. Um, so yeah, I, I would be surprised if you could get rid of any of these entirely, but making them less um, important um, because social situations have changed, uh, I think is in the cards. So I'm going to ask you kind of like the, the normative question, given the project, it seems to be more like empirical. Do you think that these values are the values that we ought to have? Are these the good values or do you think like, ah, this one, this one, not so much. And maybe there's like, uh, but maybe there's like another value that we ought to have, but that we don't. Yeah. So that's a bit of a matter of opinion. But one thing that I have been exploring is the difference in emphasis put on family values or kinship um, by lay people on the one hand and philosophical theories on the other hand. So if you look at the prevalence of um, family values in, in a lay corpus, say Wikipedia, it just wildly outranks everything else. Like most of morality would seem to be about um, about looking after your family if, if you use that as your guide. By contrast, if you look to a bunch of philosophical texts, some of them don't even mention kin altruism. Uh, and the ones that do say like, yeah, but you know, be careful about like nepotism and stuff like that. Very skeptical of this notion that you ought to look after your family. And I sort of sympathize with the philosophers here. I sort of think like, well, maybe we, we've kind of been overdoing it on um, moral values that are commitments to a very small social circle. Um, and maybe these more universal values, like fair division of resources, um, have been neglected. Um, and you can see why under conditions of scarcity that might be, right? If, if you feel like, yeah, there's definitely not going to be enough to go around. So let me circle together with my small in-group, my family, and we just look after each other and everybody else can go to hell. That makes a certain amount of sense. Um, but I, it, I think it can also be kind of myopic uh, and that philosophy has a role to play in maybe bringing to the fore uh, values that don't occur to people when they're they've got that kind of scarcity mindset i see interesting i i was i, I didn't think that you were gonna go go that route i thought that you were gonna say that well philosophers just tend to think about fairness a lot we think that we we think that you know people have equal dignity and worth and so kind of fairness just kind of plays into that and so to that kind of tampers this tendency to privilege your your own family right and to like give your family more of the food protect your family from from more of the harm and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I I think the that's right, and that's in part because philosophers are sort of trained to think more abstractly and more universally. Um, so once you start doing that, you know, you start thinking about the equal moral worth of all individuals. Then all of a sudden, you think, well, I'm nothing special. Uh, yeah, that also <laughs> that also means that my cousin's nothing yeah. special. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In regards to the fair distribution of resources, and you, you may think that that becomes more important because of the kind of the, the global and interconnected system that we live in, right? Just given the gap of wealth that we have in this world, right? And it's not only that there is this huge gap, it is that the rich exploit the poor and then exacerbates this gap. Maybe, maybe empirically that that's the case. 
Yeah, I, I think that's basically right. So instead of fair divisions, we, we see more kind of hawk-dove interactions, especially at the global scale, where people who have access to just absolutely astonishing amounts of wealth take advantage of that to accrue even more wealth uh, at the cost of most of society. What's the pushback against like the, the theory of morality as social cooperation? Uh, there's, there have been a few objections that I think are pretty interesting. So one of them said, uh, yeah, well, what about our obligations to non-human animals, um, especially to non-domesticated animals? You might think, for instance, like with dogs or with horses, we actually can cooperate with them, you know, because we, we evolved them to cooperate with us. So if that's right, then then we have moral obligations to them. It seems a bit weird to think that they have moral obligations to us. Um, yeah, so like animal ethics uh, becomes a bit tricky there. With non-domesticated animals, there's really no opportunity for cooperation, but you might think we have a moral obligation not to just you know destroy wild what what's left of wild nature um, and how exactly you can justify that given the theory of morality as cooperation uh, is not entirely clear. Um, you could go just very instrumental and say, well, you know, if we if we ruin things for the wild animals, we're almost certainly ruining them for ourselves as well. So it's just a matter of prudence. So that seems to be kind of changing the, the issue. Um, there's also the question of moral obligations to future generations, right? So, you know, think about People who are going to be born a hundred years from now and suffer from the effects of global warming, don't we have a moral obligation to them to see to it that this is, to, at least to some extent, mitigated? But we can't cooperate with them, right? We're not going to exist at the same time as them. Um, so cooperation is um, is by definition impossible. That seems to be a bit of a problem. Okay, um, you might also worry about. Um, elder care and uh, care of people with really severe disabilities or cognitive disabilities. Like um, when someone is so infirm that they can't participate in cooperation anymore, does that mean we lose our moral obligations to them or we just, what, kill them or something? Um, that doesn't seem uh, very nice. So with all of these, there, there are tricks that you can pull, and, but... I'm not sure how satisfied, satisfying they are. I mean, those criticisms I get me a little confused, right? Because it sounds like that maybe they're concerned that the theory just doesn't have uh, anything to say about them, and therefore those are not moral values that we ought to have, right? And that that seems to be uh, missing the point of the project. It sounds like to me that the point of the project is it's more it's an empirical claim that these that these values are universal. It doesn't say that we ought to have other values that aren't universal, right? So in, in, in regards to our obligations to non-human animals, I, I, I just, the theory doesn't say that we shouldn't care about the human animals, right? It just says that if there is that value, that value isn't, isn't universal. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one way to play it. Um, I guess, depending on how ambitious the theory is, you, you want more or less out of it. So if the idea is that it's meant to be a comprehensive account of all moral values, then it should be able to account for sexual ethics. It should be able to account for obligations to future generations. It should be able to account for obligations to wild animals. And to the extent that it's not able to do that, then there's something missing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's not 
it's not a super strong objection. It's just saying like, well, you can't account for this yet. Maybe somebody will figure out how to. So it's not quite a counterexample. It's just pointing out that actually this is not comprehensive. Okay. So is is the goal for it to be comprehensive or is it only uh, comprehensive for universal values? I thought it was only supposed to be comprehensive for universal values. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose it depends on what you ask Oliver. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so maybe we can follow up with him. I mean, I think he is quite ambitious. He, he wants this to account for all the moral values that you're going to find. Um, and the ones I just mentioned, I think I'd be surprised if these were not universal as well. I mean, the, the idea that you can just do anything to wild animals, I'd be surprised if there are many cultures where, where that's accepted or the idea that, you know, as soon as someone is disabled, um, it's fine to just kill them. I mean, that it, it may be in the Walking Dead, you know, universe, uh, but like you, you're going to be hard pressed to find societies where where that norm is not um, embraced, at least to some extent. I guess with the the future generations thing, that's a bit different. And so you do find this kind of notion in certain indigenous um, societies and. You know, obviously, with the climate protests that are going on around the world now, that's kind of come to the fore for a lot of people. But clearly, a lot, a lot of people, at least powerful people, um, don't give a shit about future generations. So, is that one universal? I don't know. Well, I think it's it's a good time to wrap things up. I think uh, the theory is fascinating. It's a worthy project, in my opinion. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, enjoy the conversation.